Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. We've been dealing with a series entitled, What Did Jesus Really Mean? And today we come to one of those other passages that could be taken to be controversial or where different people have uh, misunderstood or misused these passages to bring out their own teachings and blamed Jesus for not communicating well. It is very, very important to understand what Jesus really meant by what he said, because Jesus is at the center of the Christian faith. If we get it wrong about Jesus, we will get it wrong about everything else. Ultimately, we cannot even be saved. And if indeed what Jesus said was not biblical or godly, then we should even be questioning whether Jesus can actually be the savior of the world. But as massive evidence from scripture stands, certainly Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is God himself. And everything he said, he, he said had no room for error. He said it deliberately. He said it with confidence. He said it with the right intentions. And my role is to help you understand why, especially as we look through one of the most misunderstood Bible passages. If you can turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and we look at this passage from verses 18, it is a story about the rich man and the kingdom of God. Now listen to what Luke writes in verse 18 of chapter 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now this is a passage that we want to look at. And as you have heard, it's about a rich young man, a young ruler in fact, who comes to Jesus and has a major concern, a very important concern in fact. His question is, What must I do to merit or to have eternal life? And the way Jesus responds has been very much misunderstood by different people throughout the history of the Christian church. Some have asked, did Jesus mean that we can attain our salvation by works? Is Jesus saying that one can actually find eternal life by obeying the law? 
Why would Jesus refer to this young man to the commandments? Why is Jesus asking this young man to obey the commandments? Is he saying that if you obey, if you do not commit adultery, if you do not lie, if you honor your father and mother, is Jesus actually saying that you can get eternal life? And some have concluded that Jesus taught that salvation is by works and not grace. Others have concluded that salvation is really all up to you. It's what you do that determines your eternal destiny. Others have concluded today that salvation is by self-sacrifice and doing good works. So for instance, if you have your money and you give your money to the poor, maybe you set up orphanage projects, or you help people who are in the refugee camps. Maybe you help the young mothers or you build a maternity hospital for a community. All those wonderful philanthropic works can actually add up to help you attain your salvation. They conclude this because of Jesus' statement to the young man to go and sell his wealth, give it to the poor, and then come follow Jesus. But if we look at this passage, was Jesus really teaching salvation by works to the rich young ruler? Is Jesus really saying that if this young man does all those things, he can actually attain eternal life? What is really going on here? At first glance, in fact, it might mean that Jesus is teaching salvation by works to this young man. But that's really not the case. If you consider the broader context of scripture, I think scripture leaves us in no doubt that nobody by the obedience to the law or by his personal works can ever attain salvation. In fact, if salvation was a possibility by the works of the law, then we wouldn't even need the New Testament. There was no need for Jesus to come and die. Because the commandments were already there as far as in the book of Exodus. If the commandments were all there is for one to get saved, there is no need for Jesus coming, Jesus suffering, Jesus dying, Jesus rising from the dead. The law would have been enough. But if there is anything that the Bible tells us about the law, in fact, it is the fact that the law cannot save the law never saved anyone. The law will never save anyone. In fact, as we look to the law, the law seems to condemn people. The law seems to be holding up a higher righteous standard that no human being can ever attain. If there is anything the law reminds you and I about, it is the fact of our sinfulness, our hopelessness in sin, and our inability to ever come out of that sinfulness and become right with God. The law continues reminding us, ringing a bell, you have sinned, you have sinned, you have sinned. Every time you do something, you look to the law, and it reminds you, you have sinned. The law is, does not save, the law brings condemnation. The law calls forth for judgment. The law reminds us of our inability to ever be right or to ever change or improve ourselves. So if the law does not save according to the testimony of scripture, but Jesus is asking this young man whether he obeyed the Ten Commandments, what is Jesus actually saying? Jesus is demonstrating to the young man that salvation is not a doing thing. It's a being thing. 
Salvation is not a series of things that you do and then you attain it. Salvation is not a fulfillment of certain laws. It's not a lifestyle of do's and don'ts. In fact, by Jesus holding out the law to the young man, Jesus is not even saying that the young man can find salvation by the law. What Jesus is actually saying is that there is much more to salvation than what you have done and what you have not done. In fact, if there is anything that Jesus says by holding the law before this young man, it is to prove to him that he has broken the law, he has failed to keep the law. And as you can see, when Jesus tells him, go sell your wealth and give to the poor, then come and follow me, what is the response of this young man who had kept all the other laws? He was very sad. He could not do it. He was so much in love with his wealth that he could not imagine life without it. Wealth was his idol. He had already broken the commandment about idols. Wealth had become his god. He was already giving his worship to the wrong object of worship. Instead of worshiping God, he was worshiping his wealth. That is why he could not imagine losing his wealth, even when it meant that he might lose his life in the end. He would rather keep the wealth and lose eternal life. Jesus is basically saying, young man, thank you for your trying. Thank you for the few commandments you have kept. But do you realize you've not kept all of them? Do you realize, in fact, you've broken most of them? Do you realize that you have not understood the work of the law in your life? The law was never meant to make things easier for you. The law was meant to expose you for who you really are so that you can cry out for help that can only come apart from the law. As you can see, this young man has broken the law, and so by the works of the law, indeed, he cannot be saved. He has failed Jesus' test of removing his allegiance from his wealth to God, and the young man has failed the test. And there is one lesson that remains outstanding, and one that is worthy of all of us learning that by the works of the law, as the scriptures say, no man can be saved. Look at the other issue number two. The problem, in fact, that this young man comes with as he asks Jesus. Clearly, he does not understand the concept of salvation, and he is far from it. How do we know that? Listen to the question that he asked Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Number one, he thinks that he can do something to get saved. So for him, salvation is a what you do or don't do. And the testimony of scripture would run contrary to his thinking. Salvation is not a what you do. It is a what you are, a what you become. But number two, which is another problem in this young man's theology, this young man thinks he can do certain things to inherit eternal life. And Jesus will soon show him that eternal life is not an inheritance. Eternal life is not hereditary. It is not something you get because your father had it, your grandfather had it, your great-grandfather has it, so it has been passed on to you. 
That's not how salvation works. That's not what it is. That's not how you attain it. It is not an inherited thing. It is not something you do. In fact, the testimony of scripture would point to the fact that salvation is not only all of God from beginning to end, but it is the gift of God from beginning to end. That you receive it as a gift. You receive it as something given to you, not something worked for or earned. Which is why the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 4 from verses 4 and 5. And he says that now, when a man works, his wages are credited to him not as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Please see the difference here. Paul is saying that if you work hard for something on a job and they come and pay you at the end of the day, they are not helping you. It's not a favor. They are giving you what you have worked for and what you rightly and duly deserve. So when they pay you your salary, you don't even have to say thank you to your employer as though he has done you a favor. He is giving you what you worked for and you are now all square, you are now all equal. You did his work and he gave you your money. And Paul is saying that there is no gift in that kind of transactional relationship. You get what you deserve. But to the man who does not work, the one who trusts God who justifies the wicked. Notice that, that God justifies the wicked, not the good ones. Not the ones who have done something. Not the ones who have made themselves better. But the one who are wicked in every sense of the word. And then God comes in, willingly, voluntarily, without pressure or coercion. And God justifies them. The word justification comes from the sense of being made right. So God comes to these wicked people who have done nothing to deserve anything good, who in fact in every sense of the word deserve judgment, men who stand condemned before the law of God, and which law cannot save them or help them to get closer, but men who now must depend solely on the, un the undeserved mercy of God apart from which they will perish. So Paul says that to such a man who trusts God, who justifies the wicked without anything they have done of their own, such a man's faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying that eternal life is not something you inherit. It is something you receive as a gift. It is something that is given graciously. It is something undeserved. It is something that you have not worked for. So the question like the young man is asking, what must I do, is certainly a flaw in his theology and understanding of how men are made right before God or justified. It is not a doing thing. It is something that God has already accomplished for you. It is something that God has already prepared for you and something that God bestows upon you and invites you to enjoy. The only work, in fact, that a person can do to be saved is faith. Paul says that such a man's faith is credited as righteousness. You remember in John chapter 6 verse 29, when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, what can we do to accomplish the works of God? And what was Jesus' reply? This is the work of God 
that you believe in the one he has said. The disciples fall into the same error. They think there are certain things they can do in order to please God. And once again, Jesus reminds them that the Christian life is not a doing thing. The Christian life is an accomplished thing. God has already done it and he has given us a gift we do not deserve. When we think that there are certain strategies or certain things or rules or obligations that we must obey in order to be made with right with God, we insult his work of grace in Christ Jesus and everything that Christ did on Calvary's cross on our behalf. We must come to God acknowledging that he has already done it, that we are undeserving sinners, there is nothing in us that merits his kindness or his love, and only as we believe this God that justifies the wicked without any of their effort, only as we put our trust in him, do we have our faith credited as righteousness. This young man clearly missed it. He thought it was about what he can do. Maybe he thought with part of his wealth he could buy it and add it on top of his wealth. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about what you have. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's not something you inherit. It is something that you receive. Isn't that what Paul meant when he talked to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2? That for a man can only be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, that it is not of works lest any man should boast, that salvation exclusively is of the Lord, and the only thing a man has done is to receive what God has done. So what happens when a church or a group of people or a fellowship or even a group of individual Christians decide that for them they are going to get saved on their own without God? What happens when they think that they are going to manipulate God into forgetting their sinfulness uh, because of a number of things they are doing or not doing? What happens when somebody becomes a member of the church and thinks that by serving diligently in the church they can actually attain salvation? Sooner or later they realize that what they have trusted in is an empty and sham theology whose foundation is sand and therefore is sinking, that their efforts, no matter how good they are, remain tinted with sin and certainly under the judgment of a righteous God, that their righteousness, even their very best, as the prophet Isaiah says, is actually like filthy rags. That's what it means to trust in one's own flesh. So when Jesus talked to the young man about the commandments, he was not condoning the obedience of the law as a way to get saved. Jesus was not certainly saying, young man, if you stop stealing, you stop killing, you no longer womanize, you, you, you become a nice guy, you will attain salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. He begins with what the young man knows, which is the obedience to the law in the Old Testament. He shows him the inability of the law to make things right with him. He heightens his desperation and hunger and desire for salvation. He shows him how no matter how many commandments the young man keeps, he can never keep them all to attain eternal life. And then he draws him to the only other way through which salvation is possible, and that is clinging to Christ and letting go of everything else. Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me. 
Come to me. Your trust cannot be in your wealth. Your trust cannot be in the commandments. Sooner or later you break one of them. And then you realize that he who breaks one has broken all. You can only find eternal life. Not by inheriting it. Not by deserving it. Not by working for it as though you were receiving eternal life as a salary or a wage for your hard earned work. But by the gift of God. The gift that comes by grace. The gift that is undeserved. The gift that is given to the wicked where they are made righteous before God. On the basis of what Jesus has done, not on what they themselves have done. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Ephesians chapter 2, that for you were dead in your trespasses, unable to help yourselves, cut off from the commonwealth of God's people. But God, who is rich in mercy, please mark that, but God, who is rich in mercy, raised us up in Christ Jesus. You were dead. Dead men don't keep the law. Dead men don't do things to please God. Dead men cannot inherit anything. They are dead. And Paul says, such is what we were. Until God, who is rich in mercy, through Jesus Christ, his son, made it possible for us to get saved. Salvation is God's gift to the undeserving. It is God's unmerited favor to the wicked ones, not to the law keepers, not to the wealthy, not to the doers of certain things or keepers of certain regulations, but to the wicked who trust in the God who can make people right. I hope that you will not be deceived by some of these churches or these groups that will come across such certain Bible passages and distort them, make it look like though as though Jesus was saying that by the keeping of the law anybody can be saved. Scripture makes it categorically clear, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and must work and believed in to the glory of God alone. May the Lord bless you abundantly as you continue to ponder this wonderful truth. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.